0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today we're talking with Harry Bennett about his new study of British naval and foreign policy in the years after the First World War, entitled The Royal Navy in the Age of Austerity. Harry, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, and uh, good to hear you.
0: I wonder if you could start us off by telling something about yourself.
1: Well, I'm, uh, I'm in my 25th year of teaching now. or Since 1992, I I've taught at the University of Plymouth. In England, um, I specialize in naval and military history. So uh, I, I think that sort of fit quite nicely into the sort of mature bracket. Um, the latest book is a sort of consideration, a sort of drawing together of a series of things that I've been thinking about and working on since I, I got my PhD in 1993.
0: What was it led you to read it now, though?
1: Well, I think there's a number of things. First of all, I was asked to uh, give a paper in 2014, about the Anglo-Japanese Naval Alliance of 1902 and how that actually began to uh, morph and to run into trouble during the First World War and immediately after. But there's also the very modern context of the whittling down of certainly the British Navy in the context of the Strategic Defence and Spending Review of 2010, And it seemed to me that there were a strong number of parallels between what was happening in terms of British defence and British foreign policy after the First World War and the period, uh, which is certainly in British politics, is known as austerity, which was introduced with the sort of great great world crash of sort of 2007, 2008, and what followed from that, particularly in the circumstances of the... SDSR 2010. So I thought there's a number of sort of parallels there that I really wanted to explore and also to potentially begin to think about, well, what are the ramifications when the politicians get it wrong? We live in an age when naval spending is... Um, constantly under pressure as a result of economic uh, of economic and financial difficulties. So it seemed to me that it was worth exploring this period after the First World War to see just what had transpired then and what the repercussions had been in terms of British defence and foreign policy.
0: You highlight where it's not just a parallel, but what seems to be a standard dynamic, which is how after a period of great spending and demand upon the military, at the moment that demand eases or is perceived as easing, that there's a Call for economy, which brings a lot of choices to the forefront. And as you demonstrate, it has a lot of ramifications in terms of what happens 20 years later during the late 1930s and with the Second World War.
1: Yeah, I like, I like the way in which you use that word dynamic. I think it's certainly there. And I think it's a real problem, not just in terms of Great Britain after the First World War or, or Great Britain in the early 21st century, but actually almost any democracy following a period of, where, uh, of warfare, where expenditure has been particularly heavy, where the public are effectively sick of war, and where there is a need for financial retrenchment. You know, how do we maintain spending on military kit which is going to be required in an emergency as we might see the outbreak of war when there are so many other demands within a democracy for a peace dividend for cuts in the military or for expenditure to be vied in other directions to potentially underpin things like social policy or things like transport or things like the rehabilitation of cities which are going through periods of decline it seems to me that this is a sort of great truism of democracy, that you know, we, we require weapons of war to defend democracies and all, all its virtue. But equally, we have a problem when the public gets war-weary and actually chooses to think about spending its money on other things. How do we maintain voter support for military expenditure in a period after after a substantial conflict?
0: As a situation that you describe in your book. And your book is about more than just the devising of naval policy from the perspective of the Admiralty, but as you make clear in your subtitle, you're incorporating these broader foreign policy issues as well, that after the end of the First World War, the British Empire is larger than it has ever been, and with that size comes all sorts of obligations and responsibilities. I was wondering if you could talk about that. What was the strategic situation for the British Empire in 1918 and 1919 when your book opens?
1: Well, it's a kind of dilemma. On the one hand, you know, you look at the success of British arms, and you think, yeah, Britain's on the Britain's on the winning side in the First World War. British arms have played a leading role in terms of winning on the battlefields of, of France and Belgium. They've been able to defeat the most potent army probably in world terms, in terms of the Kaiser's army. Um, They played a leading role, perhaps the leading role, in combating the the Kaiser's fleet. On the one hand, you know, the United Kingdom, especially after the defeat of Germany, looks incredibly powerful uh, in terms of the, the number of ships, the number of airplanes, the number of soldiers that it's got. But equally, it's got the problem of a large empire, which is literally spread around the globe. Whereas the United States faces a problem always in war, of a, of a two-ocean war, or Germany faces the problem of a two-front war, the British Empire in 19 is literally spread around the world, and the British Navy, in order to police and to maintain and to protect that empire, needs absolutely a global presence. But, of course, that calls for massive expenditure. And, of course, one of the things that the First World War has done very successfully, is to rip the innards out of the British British economy. It's cost a massive amount of money. Businesses have had to be sold off, downsized. They've moved into other areas of wartime production and have abandoned peacetime markets, places like South America, where... British manufacturers have done very, very well. They've had to be sort of ignored, leaving the market open to, amongst others, United States manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Um, Britain has occurred, incurred massive war debts. Britain has incurred massive war debts on behalf of herself, but also on the part of her allies. On the one hand, the British Empire, in global terms, looks incredibly strong. But actually, at any one point on the map, the British Empire is, by like, by, by, by contrast, actually really rather weak. Mm-hmm. Um, F.S. North Edge, in his sort of classic study, sums it up best, I think, when he refers to Britain as a kind of troubled giant uh, in foreign policy terms. And I think this kind of idea of a sort of large lumbering beast Which smaller, more able powers are able to sort of of run rings around a giant, which is so large, you attack it at any one point on its body, and it might not, it it might not be able to respond effectively to that particular challenge. Especially when that challenge can come in diverse ways, whether it's state on state action or whether it's the possibility of, say, an insurrection in, in, in somewhere like India or an insurrection in the Middle East. Britain has got some very, very large problems. And they've also got the problem as well of how do you respond to a world in military terms which has been revolutionised by the First World War. The old idea of in nineteen fourteen of a war that would be over by Christmas um seems almost laughable in the circumstances of the mud of the Somme in nineteen sixteen or, 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 or the Delme in the same year. And of course, The British Navy, since 1815, has effectively been preparing for a rerun of Trafalgar in some future war. But in the circumstances of the First World War, that hasn't hasn't actually happened. The Great Glorious Battle uh, was missed at Jutland in 1916, and new technologies have come along. The mine, the torpedo, uh, the aircraft, which seems to challenge Britain's traditional naval mastery. The smaller powers are able to adopt these new technologies and to potentially sort of compromise Britain's imperial and national security because they can adopt these technologies, whereas the British have effectively spent a small fortune on the technology of the battleship, which by 1919 seems questionable in the possibility that it is obsolete and certainly the idea that it is obsolescent is, is, is being widely talked about. So in other words, the British have invested massively in a fleet to guard an empire um, and the British Empire itself is troubled. Uh, there are problems throughout that empire. And maybe the technologies of the day are changing so rapidly as to render obsolete, or at least obsolescent, that fleet which it has taken so much tax, so much in the form of taxpayers' money to create. The British have got problems everywhere you look, whether it's within the empire, whether it's in terms of their military policy. Or we could go even further. You know, we begin to look at home about some of the problems that, that that are developing there. The possibility of communist revolution within the United Kingdom. By 1919, we have soldier strikes, we have police strikes, we have communist propaganda, which is circulating, the rise of trade unions, sometimes aggressively pushing their uh, industrial disputes, and also the possibility that the old uh, dynamic of British politics between a Liberal Party and the Conservative Party might be shattered by the emergence of a Labour Party, which may be, on the one hand, perhaps extreme socialist, or on the other hand, it may be much more moderate in form, much more sort of pressing by, by reasonably gentle means the demands of the industrial proletariat. Everywhere we look, the status quo in terms of Britain as a great power is under threat and under challenge. And the government of the day has to work out, well, how do we begin to respond to these challenges? It is no easy matter. In strategic terms, Britain's got problems.
0: One of the things that stood out in your book was how, from the Admiralty perspective, while there were all of these emerging technologies which potentially jeopardized the massive tool of naval power that was the dreadnought battleship, At the same time, those technologies were so unproven that they remained wedded to these expensive warships which were potentially vulnerable, but for the foreseeable future would remain the standard means of naval power projection.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're they're taking a kind of view in 1919. There are are several committees of inquiry in the period 1919, uh, uh, until 1922, which look at this question about The battleship is really sort of Britain's, the battleship is really the bedrock on which Britain's security rests. And there are a series of committees which begin to investigate this issue. Well, if the battleship is the bedrock, is the bedrock being compromised by these technological developments? And the Admiralty view is, on balance, that they can do things to offset the threats from some of these emergent technologies. You know, we can provide better underwater protection against torpedoes and mines. We can do more in the form of anti-aircraft guns in terms of strengthening um, the armour on decks to protect large ships from the dangers of aircraft. They are thinking, though, even by 1919, 1920, uh, 19, 19, that Changes are going to have to be made. That sooner or later, things like the submarine might become such a deadly effective weapon of war that the battleship might be compromised. But they conclude, on balance, and the Admiralty is a conservative bastion, uh, conservative of the small sea, that the moment for the eclipse of the battleship has not yet arrived. It may be coming, it may be just about visible on the horizon, but it hasn't arrived yet. And on that basis, given other considerations and the technologies of the day, they have to maintain the battleship as the kind of standard of power, the bedrock, on which uh, British national security and imperial security is going to rest. But but it is a problem. They're They're looking at the battleship. They're asking questions. But the balance of opinion is it still has utility. It still has a life. At some point in the future, it may be eclipsed, but the moment is not yet now.
0: What seems to have shaped that conclusion in part is their assessment of the threats that the Royal Navy in particular might have to deal with. You spent a good amount of space talking about the two greatest potential challengers to British naval supremacy, which were Japan and the United States. Could you elaborate a bit more about those challenges and how they played out in particular regarding concerns about the British presence in the Pacific Ocean?
1: The British are very mindful, thanks to the sort of battleship building programs which are initiated in the United States and Japan during the uh, First World War, that their position as the preeminent naval power is under serious threat. Certainly the American building program of 1916 really does threaten the long-term uh, security of the Royal Navy, and thus the long-term security of uh, the United Kingdom, as they see it. Now, in some ways, we could actually say, well, look, the British really have got nothing to fear from the United States of America. Uh, We don't yet have the Anglo-American special relationship. But certainly, even by 1918, there are very few who thought of some occasion which might arise where the United States and Britain would go to war again, as they did do in the early 19th century. They're really ruling that out.
0: There's also the consideration that if you had gone back 20 years from 1919, Germany may not have seemed to be quite the great naval threat that they would become over the two decades that followed, which underscores the difference between the reality of an active enemy and the concern of so many planners of what the next decade or two will hold in terms of the threat that they will face.
1: That's it. You're going to need a change of policy in Washington, and suddenly things may get rather problematic for the British. Certainly, I think if we we can see a division of opinion, perhaps between the admiralty and British politicians. British politicians, by and large, um, there's a very large number who are um, very pro-United States in the way that they think. There's a smaller number, but they're still significant, of what might be described as imperialists who look at the United States and think the United States has an issue with the fact that Britain has an empire and that what the United States would like to do is to secure access for American um, manufacturers and business people to secure access to British markets and um, uh, potentially raw materials throughout the empire. So there may be a cause of friction at some point in the future. And then we have the admiralty position, which is really, look, we have to look at the balance sheet, not in terms of who our friends are at any one moment in time, but the worst case scenario. If we did have a situation where the United States uh, did have some issue with it, and it did turn into a war, then, then we have to be in a position where we're willing to take on the United States and we need a fleet which is actually capable. Most politicians don't think in that way, but the Admiralty has to think in worst-case scenarios. Mm-hmm. And likewise with the Japanese, you know, there's, there's a, a large number of British, uh, 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 British politicians who are um, thankful to the Japanese for their assistance during the First World War, but equally there's a large number who are rather more suspicious of the Japanese, who are prepared to believe that while Britain might not have any issue with the United States at the present, or indeed for the foreseeable future, when it comes to the Japanese, there are issues in the relationship. And that Japan eyes with... um, Avaricious eyes, the presence of the British Empire in East Asia, and would be very happy to uh, see that empire eclipsed. And certainly, there are powers uh, in, there, there are elements within the British Empire, particularly perhaps the Australians, particularly perhaps the Canadians who either out of a certain suspicion or fear of the Japanese or a genuine desire to cooperate with the United States of America and to see uh, American opinion, which is more um, anti-Japanese, they'd like to see that uh, opinion addressed and um, uh, reconciled with British policy. There's much more concern and suspicion of what the Japanese are up to. Certainly in terms of their China policy, which is going to bring them into long-term collision with the United States, and also potentially in terms of the Japanese having Pan-Asian ambitions to potentially emerge as the sort of leading power within not just East Asia, but the whole of Asia, which would naturally bring them into difficulties with the British and the British Empire.
0: What are the points you make in your book, and one which I must confess I never appreciated until I read it, is that this is also occurring at a time when Japan is developing the ability to build a fleet independent of the British. You point out that the majority of the Japanese capital ships at the Battle of Tsushima in 1905 were built in British shipyards. Now, less than a decade and a half later, Japan had the ability to build a fleet of battleships without relying upon the British, which reduced Britain's ability to exert that indirect control on Japanese naval expansion.
1: Yeah, I mean one has to imagine and it's kind of hard it's kind of hard to see it from a 21st century perspective just how quickly Japan has developed from the point of being a, a power whose military technologies are are almost medieval. To the point where the Japanese have begun to learn the lessons of European, uh, European and American industry, to the point where they've begun to adopt, indeed master, um, Western-style military technologies. To the point where, in 1894, 1895, they can take the Japanese, sorry, they can take the Chinese on in a, in a Sino-Japanese war over control of the Korean Peninsula to the point where in 1904, 1905, they can engage the Russian military and decisively beat them at Tsushima, to the point where they no longer need, by the turn of the First World War, um, British naval manufacturers and designers to create for them the ships, which will allow them to best European fleets. to the point where Japanese shipyards have mastered the techniques of uh, naval building and are able to turn out battleships, cruisers, destroyers, indeed submarines, which are every bit as good as the ones which the British and the Americans and the French, etc., are turning out. That pace of learning, that pace of mastery is something else. To be able to be in a position within the course of a single lifetime, to move from um, wooden hulled junks, firing black powder cannon the position where the Japanese have, are, are, are deploying their own home-built latest technology, uh, mili- military and particularly naval kit, that's something else that's quite frightening. And certainly, you know, the British are sort of very well aware that you know, the Japanese no longer need us. And so, for example, after the, first, after the First World War, when the Japanese are effectively saying to the British, you know, we, we don't need your ships anymore. Thankfully, our yards are perfectly capable. Uh, the British are, are, are somewhat concerned by this. So, for example, I think it's 1919 when the Japanese decide, hang on a minute, there's this new thing called naval aviation. Uh, and uh, the British look pretty good at that. We need to learn the lessons of that. We need to perfect our own naval aviation to go with what we've already learned. You know, the British are, are, are very reluctant to send an official mission to Japan to teach the Japanese the secrets of, of naval aviation, which they suspect at some point in the future just might be turned against the British and indeed others. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's left a sort of private, uh, private means to actually deliver that expertise to the Japanese. The British are getting worried about the process Uh, On the progress of the Japanese military. And uh, they're beginning to sort of think, well, perhaps we shouldn't help the Japanese in quite the way in which we have done. The Japanese have moved from being a kind of client state, um, requiring British technology, British expertise, to the point where they've developed that technology and that expertise. And and indeed, they're perhaps in a position to begin to turn around and teach us a few things, and that may bode very ill for the future. Mm Mm-hmm. We've essentially got a realignment of British politics beginning to take place during and, in, and especially after the First World War. That During uh, the war, we have a wartime coalition, uh, which, is predominantly, um, uh, which is predominantly made up of the Conservative and Liberal parties. In 1918, David Lloyd George, uh, the British Prime Minister, decides to keep that coalition going into the peace. So Britain goes through this thing called the coupon election, where the Prime Minister actually recognises that certain candidates are for the coalition, are sort of endorsed by the Prime Minister, even though they're from two separate parties. Lloyd George is Liberal, but he's also endorsing not only his own coalition Liberals, but he's also endorsing coalition Conservatives as, as well, who are willing to keep this. Um, this coalition going into the peace. The House of Commons in in late 1918 is very heavily dominated by the Individuals, the members of parliament who've received this coupon, this endorsement, we have uh, alongside that we have a number of other MPs, including Labour members of parliament, and indeed Asquithian liberals who basically rebelled against Lloyd George. They want no part of his coalition with the with the Conservatives. And what they face, the problem they're faced with uh, delivering or answering is what is the future shape of Britain to be in this post-war period? They've come together to try and maintain this sort of political coalition into the peace to address many of the economic, military, foreign policy, and other problems that they're facing. And one of the biggest problems that they're facing is the issue of unemployment. What's going to happen to the old staple British industries of things like coal and steel uh, and cotton? because British industry is now beginning to lag behind the rest of the world, and that is having uh, economic consequences in the form of high unemployment. That, in turn, has a political consequence, because... As those staple industries begin to decline, particularly in some of the northern towns and cities, this opens up the way for the Labour Party to potentially emerge and replace the Liberal Party on the left wing of British politics. So we begin to have, during 1921, 1922, the emergence of a serious threat from the Labour Party And of course, one of the kind of dilemmas that the government faces is that while it doesn't have the money, thanks to war debts and reparations and the cost of making good um, social policy in the peace, while it doesn't have the money to perhaps lavish attention on those northern regions and also to maintain naval policy in quite the uh, high level of expenditure that it was during the, during and before the first world war there is a political imperative to do so because essentially if you if you build a battleship if you build a battleship that means jobs in shipyards that means jobs in steel mills that has consequences in terms of what's required in terms of the coal industry the coal industry, the iron industry, the shipbuilding industry, after a period of initial boom after the First World War, begins to enter the doldrums. They begin to experience hard times. There is a possibility in 1921, 1922, that if you place orders for battleships, suddenly you have money going into these northern towns and cities. Many of them are associated with these old staple industries like iron, steel. And coal. So the government faces a kind of political, a, a political dilemma. If it can't afford to invest in the British Navy, but politically it can't afford not to invest in the <laughs> British Navy, because it will lead to political dividends. To so not to invest is to create unemployment in these in these northern towns and cities, like Glasgow in Scotland, like Sheffield in Yorkshire. So they're aware that if they if they don't place orders for big ships, it may deliver these big cities to the Labour Party and assist the Labour Party to usurp the place of the Liberal Party on the left of British politics. They're in a really difficult situation. You know, it, it, it's back to the pork barrel, I'm afraid. Can you actually sort of direct the pork barrel at the right areas, which will make a difference politically? And that, that's the choice that the Lloyd Lord George government really faces. But that in, turn, then, is co- that in turn is then complicated by foreign policy, because the question of do you build battleships, or how many battleships you build, or are you allowed to build battleships and potentially create a naval race with the United States and Japan – that then in turn becomes an issue. So in other words, to address the political issues in places like Sheffield and Glasgow by building battleships creates economic difficulties, financial difficulties, but also have to be done in concert with what's happening in Washington and what's happening in Tokyo and what's happening in terms of a world which is now being at least ostensibly, sort of um, controlled or or mediated by a League of Nations, which is pursuing global disarmament.
0: As you write, there are two other factors that come into play here. The first is that there was briefly an anti-waste movement applying political and ideological pressure from the right to reduce expenditures. And the other is that now that the Royal Navy had effectively outsourced so much of their warship construction, especially their large warship construction, to these private contractors, that they needed to maintain that pool of talent and infrastructure, lest it not be there when they might need it the most
1: yeah i mean they're they're in a real situation both in terms of the short term and the long term the short term as you say um is being dominated particularly in 1920 21 by um this campaign called anti-waste it, it's almost a kind of like a british version of the tea party before the tea party gets going um and they're basically they basically want to say you know look, look we, we can't afford things taxation has to be cut that you know uh, London is wasting our money in in massive amounts. Um, So they want to cut expenditure. And in the longer term, we've got a situation whereby the Royal Dockyards, which have been so good at producing ships in wood, well, by the 1850s, wood is giving way to uh, walls of steel and iron. And, And Royal Navy warships construction is being outsourced, outsourced to private yards, we are doing a pretty good job of introducing innovations of actually making it pay. And the British realise, the Royal Navy in particular, is very, very aware that if they lose those private yards, there's no way back in terms of British warship construction. Unless you're going to invest tens of millions in bringing the Royal Dockyards into the 20th century, instead of just having them involved in warship repair and refit, unless you're going to give them state-of-the-art equipment to build the latest ships, we're really dependent upon those private manufacturers. And, of course, the private manufacturers are turning around and saying in 1920 in particular, when there's a post-war boom in merchant ship construction, well, well, if we're not getting the orders for, uh, for warships, if we're not getting the orders, why should we actually maintain yards which are expensive? Why should we maintain specialist facilities for making armour plate? Because we 're just going to lose money at that why don 't we go into something more profitable why don't we, why, why, why don 't we go more heavily into merchant ship construction or why don 't we simply close those specialist facilities because they 're costing us money to maintain well of course if you 're the Royal navy if you 're the british admiralty you 're hearing these complaints and concerns and you begin to realize the possibility that Britain might after the first world War, lose her naval uh, preeminence to the united states mm-hmm. but actually if it could reach a certain level whereby the royal navy is permanently consigned to a second or third or even fourth place mm-hmm. because as it were if you lose those private yards there's, it's going to be very, very difficult to reopen them. It's going to be very difficult to pour money into the Royal Dockyards to get Royal Navy ships built of an appropriate standard. In other words, once the British have lost their naval lead, given their naval lead, given that they're so dependent upon private uh, private yards, it could be that the Royal Navy can simply never respond in the future to a national emergency or to something equivalent to the kind of uh, battleship building race that had taken place with Germany before the First World War. If those yards close, the Royal Navy is in serious, serious trouble. America and Japan can simply outbuild Britain at any point they choose to.
0: And that leads to the G-3 program of battlecruisers and the drafting of the plans for the N-3 battleships, which means that they're starting to ramp up for this post-war naval arms race, even though there's little desire for it.
1: In some ways, we we have these series of plans which are developed after the First World War for the next generation of battlecruisers and battleships. They're what the Royal Navy would like to see built. They're what the politicians think Britain can't afford to build. Equally, there is an awareness that without the prospect of orders, some of those private enterprise firms are simply going to—they uh, are going to get rid of their facilities. They are going to turn them over to something else. There is also a realisation as well that without the prospect of those next-generation ships being built, the Japanese and the Americans will take one look at Britain and say, "They're done." The Royal Navy's preeminence in world naval affairs is over. If the British aren't willing to invest, it's because they can't. If the British can't invest, they lose the yards. They lose not only their preeminence, but also their ability to respond to us in the future the government is effectively in a position where it's playing a game of poker. It's playing a game of poker with the Japanese. It's playing a game of poker with Washington. And it's also playing a game of poker with the the private yard manufacturers. You've, as it were, got to give the appearance of being willing to build these next generation ships, which will cost very little in terms of giving the appearance of, while at the same time not committing yourself to the financial burden of actually building them. The British are trying to create a kind of a mirage, a smokescreen, an appearance of doing something when actually the politicians who are really in charge are not prepared to sign on the dotted line contracts which will commit the british expenditure to, t- to millions of pounds of expenditure at a point when the public is world weary and you've got um you've got you've got anti-waste MPs and anti-waste uh, uh politicians who are saying cut the government expenditure we can't afford all this expenditure on naval arms the torpedo and the mine and the aircraft have rendered all that obsolete why should we waste the money so the government is really in a difficult situation it's got to give the appearance of trying to do something while at the same time it can't afford to sign on the dotted line the british are 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 literally in a difficult position
0: It seems as though a Naval Arms Limitation Treaty is really the only option that they have, given the competing pressures that they faced.
1: Yeah. In other words, but for the Washington Naval Conference of 1921-1922, and the agreement to limit arms, Britain faces a very, very difficult situation. They're They're in a position where they really cannot win. What they require is they need some building of capital ships, to keep the yards open, but they can't have have a government program which is going to bankrupt the Exchequer. So they need a few ships to be built, but equally it's got to be cost-effective, and it can't be in the kind of full form of, say, four G3 battlecruisers or a successor generation of battleships, which is what the Royal Navy really wants. So in other words, uh, it's like the story of Goldilocks. You know, for the for the, for the, for the, the British of Goldilocks, and what they want is the porridge, which isn't too hot, which isn't too cold. <laughs> they want the porridge, which is a little bit salty, but not too salty. They've got to have exactly the right solution, which is what appears at the Washington Naval Conference, to allow them to maintain this global preeminence, to get them off the hook in financial terms, but also to channel enough money by the way, into the private yards, which, which will mean that private yards will still think, hey, there's a future in, 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 in naval warship building. And that's exactly what they managed to do. Because there are elements within the Republican Party as well, and, and, and British uh, officials within the British Admiralty and certainly within British politics know this, that equally are looking at the 1916 program. Uh, of Woodrow Wilson are thinking, wow, that's going to cost an awful lot. Uh, we, we, we can't afford that either. We want to do away with that. So as it were, there is a kind of a very interesting um, meeting of minds between British politicians and American Republican politicians about we need to cut the cost here. We need to do right by the taxpayer. And, of course, we've also got a kind of rough meeting of minds as well between the Royal Navy and the United States Navy because while there are some characters in the United States Navy that are saying, hey, let's outbuild the British and wouldn't that be great, there are equally many sort of... figures within the United States Navy which value the cooperation, which value the relationship, and are saying, well, look, let's have a partnership here. Let's not have a competition. So there is a kind of rough meeting of mind which takes place in the Washington Conference of 2122, And, of course, both the British and the Americans are very keen to see that whatever happens with the Japanese, they're not in a position of equality, that the Japanese fleet is kept within, as they see it, proportion to their imperial and other requirements.
0: I like how you term the Washington Conference the establishment of the Pax Anglo-Americana, in that the meeting of minds leads to an agreement in which they come out on top and Japan is mollified to the point where they can continue with the building program that doesn't threaten the dominance of both powers.
1: Yeah, it's it's really a sort of, uh, it's a diplomatic magic trick. They managed to make everybody happy to a certain extent. Everybody can see something in the Washington conference and its outcomes that, that they think is viable and they think is useful. And certainly while it isn't perfect, given the dilemmas that are being faced in Tokyo, in Washington, and in London, actually the, the, the Washington conference is, is really quite a remarkable piece of work. Uh, it's arguably one of the most successful uh, uh, on diplomatic grounds, even though it stores up problems perhaps later on uh, in, in terms of the Second World War, in, in terms of the 1920s, in terms of finding a way out of the dilemmas of the period, and in terms of preventing a battleship building race, it does a pretty good job.
0: How does the outcome of the conference shape not just British naval construction, but broader British policy?
1: Well, in a a sense, it allows the British to uh, resolve some of the dilemmas. The the orders for two capital ships, um, the Nelson and the Rodney, are placed. That convinces warship manufacturers that there is some future in the business, even though actually – The profits that they derive from it are are, are pretty pretty measly, but they can still see, hey, you know, the, the, the Royal Navy still requires warships of a large nature to be built. So it's successful in those terms, but also it allows the politicians, certainly in the United Kingdom, to maintain the claim that the Royal Navy is preeminent. Because while the British and the Americans share similar numbers of capital ships, in terms of gross tonnage, Britain is allowed rather more in terms of gross tonnage than the United States Navy, simply because the American uh, tonnage is a lot newer than the rather dated British tonnage. What it means in the longer term, really, is that Britain is left with an ageing fleet. Um, The the fleet that Britain enters the war with in 1939 uh, is essentially, by and large, uh, First World War or before construction. We only have the two modern ships which are constructed in the 1920s, the Nelson and the Rodney, and they are subject to the uh, tonnage constrictions of the Washington Naval Conference. In other words, their design is compromised to a certain extent. Now, one could say that given the tonnage restrictions of the Washington Naval Conference, the best possible job is done with the Nelson and the Rodney. They, they draw on a lot of the operation from the G3 battle cruisers, And indeed, the later designs for uh, uh, from the battleships that uh, uh, people like Tennyson Dane called the head of Admiralty Construction have got in mind. They do a pretty good job. But actually in the circumstances perhaps of the 1930s, when the Japanese are, are beginning to develop monster battleships like the Yamato and the Germans are beginning to develop monster battleships like the Bismarck and Tirpitz, um, whereas the British are sticking to the rules, uh, other powers are not, and they're turning out battleships which are much more powerful, uh, displace much more, um, displace much more tonnage than the British are building to the limits of the Washington Naval Conference. But it allows the British at least in political terms, to think, you know, we remain preeminent upon the high seas, we remain an important player. That's useful in cultural terms, that's useful in political terms. But in security terms, it means that the fleet that Britain goes to war with in 1939 is seriously dated.
0: That gets to one of the points that you make at the end of your book, which is, how the decisions made during this period were so influential in shaping the policies of both the successive conservative and labor administrations leading up to 1935, 1936, 1937. We see a belated reassessment and resumption of naval arms construction.
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially, what the, what what successive conservative and labor administrations are trying to do is that they want to stick by that, uh, but by, by the solution to naval. Uh, to naval policy, which is affected between 19 and 1922. They simply don't have the money to um, change things. Um, They're also content to sort of hide behind the Washington Naval Conference until the late 1930s in terms of, you know, well, we're, we're international players. We need to stick to international agreements. And even then, even in the circumstance of what they're doing in the 1920s and the 1930s, there is a great degree of penny-pinching. You know, the, the, the British strategy for the potential for war in the Far East against the Japanese is based upon the idea, agreed at Washington, that Britain can have a large fleet naval base at Singapore. The fact that that naval base is incomplete in 1941 as the Japanese attack the American naval base at Pearl Harbor um, tells you a great deal about the fact that The British are are, are really trying to save a penny every way that they possibly can be. They're not really interested in delivering on the military potential which is there, even under the Washington Naval Agreement. And they're not willing to sort of safeguard the kind of minimum terms for successful fleet operation in the Far East that the Admiralty envisaged uh, following the Washington Naval Conference. Um, the British are saving money at every turn, and they can content to hide behind the Washington Naval Conference.
0: It also serves as a very illustrative lesson as to how influential these decisions are, as it's very difficult to switch to a different path from the ones that policymakers set in Britain in 1920, 1921, 1922. It took literally another world crisis in the late 1930s before they finally belatedly made the effort to do something about it. And, of course, by that point, it's too late so that when war breaks out in 1939, they're fighting it with the fleet left over from the First World War.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, um, to build a complex warship, certainly a battleship, is going to take you a minimum of around four years in terms of the technologies of the day. Um, four years to actually build, rather longer potentially to work up a crew to an effective state, to iron out the kinks of the design to potentially refit certain elements of it. You know, we, we talk about super tankers and their sort of um, uh, ability to stop as the kind of uh, metaphor for policies which take a long time to come to fruition. Well, that's naval policy for you. If you lose your shipyard, you have a problem. If you don't build ships at the right time, you have an aged fleet that you're potentially Uh, sending young men and today young women to to go to war in in designs which are simply past their best, which are substandard, which are simply clapped out. Um, Naval policy casts a very, very long shadow over a country's foreign policy and over a country's uh, ability to uh, employ military means to defend itself. Plus, it also carries a long shadow over the particular regions which are involved in the industries which are necessary to produce warships and other weapons of war at the highest level. You know, the the inability to invest in the Royal Navy has a massive impact on cities like Glasgow and Sheffield. It helps to turn them, in 1922, in the general election, it helps to turn them into breakthrough areas for the Labour Party. Uh, It helps to create situations where, during the 1930s, these areas are going to be subject to very, very high unemployment because nothing's come along to replace the old dependency upon things like military shipbuilding. Um, So so naval policy is is an area which touches politics, It touches the economy, it touches regions, it touches the particular success of specific industries, but it also affects foreign policy on your ability to defend yourself. So in other words, a a decision which is taken in a given year might have a set of consequences, good or ill, which will be felt 20 years down the line. Uh, And that's really quite remarkable. There's almost no other aspect of government where those kind of ramifications can be seen, perhaps decades after they're taken.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. but Before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Um, I'm working on a couple of things, uh, one of which is related to naval policy and one of which is completely unrelated. Uh, The unrelated thing is I'm I'm working on uh, professional wrestling, (laughs) Uh, Yeah. No, you're not going to see me in WrestleMania or anything anytime soon. Uh, But actually, um, wrestling in its history from the 19th into the 20th century is quite a fascinating area. It's an area of sports, uh, sports history in both the United States and in the United Kingdom that, that, that very few people have actually touched. And the strange thing is the Navy is actually playing a leading role within that process. Um, that's something for another uh, another podcast, maybe later on. Plus, also, I'm working on a, a book looking at um, what they call coastal convoys around the United Kingdom during the Second World War. We're all familiar with the Atlantic convoys. We're all familiar with uh, the U-boats and the Bismarck. Well, I'm more interested in the way in which the German Navy tried to disrupt the short sea convoys around the United Kingdom as a means of disrupting British trade. Because if you can stop those short sea convoys, you prevent the transshipment of cargoes from places like Liverpool to places like Southampton, where they're going where, where to be loaded onto invasion barges to land on Normandy on the 6th of June 1944. So those are a couple of things that I'm working on at the moment. Those
0: both sound like fascinating projects.
1: Yeah, I think so anyway. It (laughs) keeps me out of trouble.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, Harry Bennett, thank you very much for taking some of your time to speak with us today about your book, The Royal Navy in the Age of Austerity. I hope hope you have a wonderful day. My pleasure.
1: Thank you.